Good morning. If you take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ruth. Ruth is where we are headed for the next couple weeks. This morning we'll cover chapter 1, and next week we'll cover chapter 2 and 3. Then we have Christmas communion on the 22nd. What a precious time that will be. And then the following week we will cover chapter 4. I can't wait for chapter 4. Anyhow, we can't get there yet. There's a couple ways ways to read the book of Ruth. Um, Maybe you have read it before. I pray you have. And if you know the story, try your best to forget it. All of you who have Disney Plus and you're trying to forget what happens as you go back and watch all those again, uh, if you know the story of Ruth, do try to forget it uh, and read it for a first time with me here this morning. So um, we may see it in a new way. Because when you're familiar with something, you miss it. And I want to be honest, I, I, I as I read and studied this text, there's so many things I didn't know that were there. And so many things I assumed. And uh, many times when you assume you're wrong, and I, and I did. I missed a lot of things. And um, I, the notes I gave to our crew um, Thursday are not even close to where I am this morning. As I even studied more this weekend, guys. So we'll scrap those. Sorry. Um, there's not. Sorry. They're not. And as more I studied the Word and got in it, the more God revealed um, something uh, showed me his word even more uh, because I was familiar with it. Um, because this story was written 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago. And, and you and I both know to truly study the Bible, it takes hard work. And we have to go back 3,000 years. I was thinking um, my great-grandfather is a World War II vet, still alive. Uh, could you imagine how much the world has changed since he's been alive? I mean, wow. Can you imagine how much the world has changed in 3,000 years? Uh, And the job we have as God's people to study his word is to go back into that culture and and lay aside the best we know how, what we know and in our culture and the way we perceive things and try to perceive it from the uh, author and original audience standpoint for what God has for us today. And so doing that, uh, you just assume certain things and but wasn't there. But what an amazing story Ruth truly is. And guys, it is a love story. And so I want to maybe recommend to pitch to your loved one that we don't have to watch all the Hallmark Christmas movies. There's a great love story at church we can go hear about. So let's hold off on some of that. No, I'm just kidding. Please watch all the Hallmark you would like. But uh, I, I do believe it is, history tells us, the first short story that was ever written, and it is a love story. But what makes it such an amazing story is where it's found in the Bible. It's found in utter darkness, and we're going to see that. So uh, if you hear Sunday night, you heard Pastor Jacob just go through the whole book and sum it up and a great introduction. So we won't do that, but we're going to dive into it this morning, and we're going to dissect a couple verses at a time. And as we do that, um, after we get done with that, we're going to focus on one character and, and what God is doing. And I really believe maybe it's the main character of this story, and it's not who it's named for. So anyhow, let's, let's dive into the text, if you will, with me this morning. Uh, chapter 1 of Ruth. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malone and Kilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab, and they remained there. So right off the bat, you, you may say, well, that's not how I thought those names were pronounced. Well, it's okay. 
uh, Hebrew, all the biblical languages are dead. We don't know how they're actually pronounced. So feel okay if you've pronounced it differently than I did. It's okay. But right off the bat, uh, if we go to what the original reader would have thought when he read this text, the, the Jew, when he first read this, said, wait a minute. This is a time, and it tells us in, the, in verse 1, in the time of the judges. Uh, if you want to understand the time of the judges, just look in the last verse of the book of Judges. It says, In those days there's, there was no king in Israel, and every did, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, you see this cycle of disobedience and rebellion against God, and uh, God disciplines the people, and the people repent, and then uh, God sends a judge to deliver them. And you see this cycle over and over. And anarchy, it's a time of anarchy, and it's a time of darkness, utter darkness. And not only that, there's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land. Uh, really, none of us here truly, I would dare to say, know what famine is or have experienced famine. Uh, but there was true famine. And the certain man of Bethlehem. So right there, he's born in Bethlehem. There's already irony here in the text. Bethlehem uh, it means a house of bread. It's in God's promised land. It's the house of bread. But see the irony? The house of bread, there's famine. So that's the situation, the time and the place. And it says that this man, in verse 1, went to the country of Moab. The first reader said, whatever you do, why did you go to Moab? Anywhere you go would be better than Moab. It's not just a pagan nation. It's the worst pagan nation you could go to. Moab uh, started out the way the country started out. The Bible records for us is uh, when Lot had an ancestral relationship with his daughter. And from that line came the nation of Moab. doesn't stop there. As the children of Israel left Egypt and came into the promised land, the Moabites stopped them, gave them a hard time, uh, tried to curse them. But the curse uh, didn't work. God wouldn't let them be cursed. And so they decided that they would figure out how to make the men of Israel curse themselves. So they sent in their pagan women to play the prostitute with the men, and the men turned their back on God for the, these women and cursed themselves, and God judged them and struck 24,000 dead. And, and so the Moabites have always been a thorn in the side of God's people. And so to go anywhere, but don't go to Moab, the original reader, why are you going there? And then in verse 3, you see what happens, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Uh, the original re reader, I imagine, would have said, what do you think was going to happen? But no doubt, you have to have some pity for Naomi. There she is in this foreign nation, uh, led there by her husband, presumably, and there she is, and her husband dies. But it's okay. She still has two sons to take care of her. She's okay. She's, she's going to be taken care of, right? Well, uh, and read verse 4 and 5 with me. Now they took the two sons of Naomi, they took wives of the women of Moab. Ugh, it gets worse. Not only is her son, her husband's dead, but her sons have married Moabite women. Ah, it's not good. Then um, what do we know about Moabite women? There's, it's not a good thing. The name of the one was Orpha and the other one was Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. And we're going to see the irony in this is that these Moabite women who in the past have, have all not, never been nothing but trouble, one of them turns out to be God's grace to Naomi. But let's not go there. Let's not go there too fast. Verse 5. But both uh, Malone and Kilion also died. Mm. Now the, the two men who are to take care of her, their mother is now dead. 
So now what is she left with? Well, hopefully she has um, some children, uh, some grandchildren, right? Maybe uh, these two boys of hers, before they died, they had been married for 10 years. Well, surely they had kids in 10 years, right? Well, look in verse 5. Um, so the women survived her two sons and her husband. So the only survivors were her, who were Naomi and her two Moabite daughter-in-laws. There is no one to carry the line on. This is the curse of curse in this culture. Not only is her husband dead and her sons are dead, but there's no one to carry on her line. She is cursed by all it would have looked and seen. She, she is without hope. And, and the flow of the text here is, is something the writer you have to pay attention to. You know how Star Wars, when it just, it just rolls you know, in the space and just has line after line giving you the scene. There's no characters. There's no dialogue. That's how this writer starts off. It, it's very, here's just the facts. Boom, 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 boom. Cold, hard, dark facts. And that's how we have to see this. That's how he's communicating. And this is cold, and this is hard, and this is dark. That she's lost uh, her husband, her two sons, and she has no grandchildren to take on her name. Just cold, hard facts. Verse 6, so then we see, Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Okay, so she turns back to God's land, to God and his people. So that seems like good news, right? It's going to be good. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and heard two daughter-in-laws with her. So they're going to come with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So there they go. They set off. God has visited his people and brought bread and uh, prospered them in that area. So there she goes with her two daughter-in-laws. But you have to think, Naomi knows that this is going to cost her her two daughter-in-laws. Though they be Moabite women, they have been a great blessing to her. Think about all they've been through. The deaths of their husbands all together and been together ten years. And it says, um, oh, look in verse 8, And Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go and return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. They have been a blessing to her. They've dealt kindly with her. And she looks to him and says, The Lord bless you and prosper you. Turn around. I have to tell you this to go back. And look at her argument for why. Because in verse 9, she said, The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Go back and find a husband. Young ladies, go back. Go back to your land. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Have you ever cried within like 15 minutes of watching a movie? There's some movies that come to mind for me. You know, right off the bat, they're just tear jerkers. Well, right here is, is that. Right off the bat, here's a tear jerker moment. Um, I don't know if you've seen the Lord of the Rings. When uh, you, you may have known about Gandalf, the wizard, he, he, he's got a crew in all the movies, and they're going off to save the world every time, you know, or to take back the mountain in The Hobbit or whatever it is. But time after time, when they're in the middle of the darkness and in the hard time, he'll say to them, I've got to go. I've got to go do something else. You stay here. And, and I always think, especially in The Hobbit, uh, Bilbo Baggins would have said, he convinces him to leave his house and to go with um, these dwarfs to, 
to slay this dragon and take their treasure back, and he's a nobody, and he, all hobbits want to do is stay at home. <laughs> it's kind of like, me. I don't want to do is stay at home. I don't want to go on a journey. But he talks them into going on this journey, uh, and then uh, right after they go through some really hard times and they're in these mountains and this terrible terrain, he says, I've got to leave. I would imagine if I was uh, Frodo, I would have said, whoa, what do you mean you're leaving? You're leaving me here? After you taught me into doing this, you're going to leave me here? How much worse is this here? How much worse is these two daughter-in-laws who said, Naomi, we're all we have is each other. That's all we have. And now you're telling us to leave you? How can we do that? We've been through so much together. And their tears and their crying. Verse 10, and they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Here's her argument. Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them until they are grown? Would you restrain yourself from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She makes an argument. She says, if I was to have children right now, in nine months from this moment, would you wait till they are of age to marry you and give you children? No, that was nonsense. The best thing for you, though I need you and I want you, the best thing for you is to go back. The only hope you really have, God's hand has come against me. And I don't know how much hard, more hard times I'm going to have to go through, but I want the best for you. Turn around, go back, so that you may uh, be taken care of. In verse 14, then they lifted up their voice and they wept again, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. It's the same word we get in Genesis, where a man and a woman, God said, should cling to one another. Uh, same word here, she clings to her mother-in-law, and, and this is the part we all know about the book of Ruth, right? This is the part we've heard of before. And they lifted up their voice and wept, in verse 15, and she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Still trying to talk her into it. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, how many of you said this in your wedding? How many of you said the following verses? All two of you. That's awesome. Great. I'm sure more of you did. Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For whatever, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. She makes this to Naomi, but who does she also address? Ruth also addresses it to the Lord. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. She makes this commitment to Naomi, but also to God to hold her accountable to this. Look at verse 18, it's beautiful. So when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Ruth was determined. You see that in the text? She was determined. Uh, you know, this is a great thing to do in weddings. I think this should be encouraged. What great commitment. But this isn't from a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband, is it? <laughs> it's from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. I don't see much of that happening in weddings, <laughs> do you? But anyhow, but there it is. That is the context. That is the conversation. It's great commitment to her, uh, her mother-in-law. And we're going to see why I really believe she was willing to do that. And willing to commit to her and to God. 
Verse 19, now the two of them, and get this, look at verse 19. It's like scene, next scene in verse 19, here it is. Now the two of them went until they come to Bethlehem. No words. We get no dialogue. No dialogue whatsoever. Uh, and interesting, apparently what she said was so strong. I mean, what is nothing is said about uh, Naomi's comeback. It's so strong. She's silent about it. Not another word is said. Now they're in Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Is this her? She's back. Is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Her name means pleasant. Don't call me that. Call me Mara. Why? For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So yesterday, um, I, I go into Little Caesars right before game time. <laughs> if you want some excitement, that's where you <laughs> go anywhere right before the Georgia game. There's all kind of excitement going on. But I go in there and I, I walk in and the cash register, and it, it's getting busy, but it's even going to get more busy here in just a second. I walk in and I said, um, they got really good wings, so that's why I want to go in there. Not to, uh, a lot of people don't know that. Y'all keep that in there. So uh, I go in there and to get some wings and I, I, I tell you, I just, you know, like I always do, how are you doing? And I'm ready to make my order. But she said something. I didn't think she was going to say nothing. I didn't ask her to really get an answer. How many times do we do that? And she says, um, and I'm already starting to make my order. And she goes, well, I'm not doing too good. I, I fell down steps yesterday. And I was like, and I'll have a large, oh, what? I'm sorry. And I was in such a hurry to get my food and get out of Little Caesars and watch the Georgia game. I wasn't even worried about how she was really doing. Can you imagine? And I, I, the people in Bethlehem have a much better reception than I did in Little Caesars. They're excited to see Naomi. They want to know how she's doing. But boy, did they get an earful. Did they get more than they ever were expected? Oh, is this Naomi? It's not me anymore. God's dealt hard with me. God has testified against me. I went full, but he's brought me back empty. I bet they're like, whoa. This is big. This is, this is more than we were thinking we were going to get here. How do you deal with disappointments? How do you deal with heartaches? I know we're in the Christmas season, but I, I don't know about you. Sometimes we get into the Christmas season and it just don't feel Christmas yet. It's just not there. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the heartbreaks of life? How do you deal with crushed dreams, unmet expectations? What do you do with that? There's a couple options. Do you cover it up? You just put on a fake smile. You just fake it till you make it. Put on your best for Sunday and act like everything's okay. Or are you real? Do you do business with God? Do you tell God how you really feel? Or do you feel like when you pray, you've got to have all your right words to say to him? How do you deal with the hard things in life? If anybody's had hard times, Naomi's had hard times. And as I look, and I want to look at the character of Naomi this morning. And, and uh, I, here's what I know about narrative, ancient Near East narratives. The first dialogue is so important. It, it says so much about the text, of what the writer's trying to communicate. And I knew that. I knew that going in, but as I read, as I studied this, I ignored it because I said it don't make sense to me. 
The first, con- the first dialogue is, and we'll read it here again, is Naomi talks to her daughter-in-laws. Um, she prays for them. And then she says, it grieves me that the Lord's been this hard on me. As I thought about that, that didn't have anything to do with what I wanted to preach, Josh. It wasn't where I was wanting to go. But God said, that's not what the text says, Chris. Preach the text. And, and we are so apt to see Ruth as the shining, undisputed hero of this story. And no doubt she is a great figure in a shining light in a dark time, Ruth is. But I want to I wanna suggest this morning that uh, Naomi is not a weak person. Naomi is not the weak, negative, moping person in the story. She's not. She, she, I guess it, it takes, and I'm not sure I've been there, I guess it takes walking some miles in her shoes to understand this. And I think many of you will understand this better than I will this morning. As God laid this on my heart and as I was getting ready, uh, praying through this and, and studying this, God was just saying, Chris, you ain't got this figured out. You're not very good at what you're preaching. It's not very comforting to get up and preach something you're not very good at. But God's been working on me here, even the last couple of days. And so I pray he will as we talk about and look at the character of Naomi and how to deal with hurts and hang-ups and disappointments. And really, it's a great platform for us to do the same thing, to be real. And so I want us to see that here in the text. And the first thing I want us to see is that Naomi is honest. She's raw. She's, uh, it's messy, it's uncomfortable, but she is not going to put on a fake smile. She's not going to fake it till she makes it. She's not going to just act like everything's okay. How easy would it have been when she walked, when she come back home to say, all right, all right, all right, Ruth, put on your good smile. Here we go. We're going in. Put on your good smile. We'll talk about the hard stuff when we get home. She didn't do that, did she? She's honest. She's very honest. She's not casually covering it up. No, you see, what she's actually doing is a biblical practice we in our culture know very little about. It's called lamenting. Lamenting and prayers of lament is something that Christians who have come before us uh, in the Bible and since then uh, is a road they have traveled very much. But that road has been overgrown with thorns and thistles, and we don't do much of it. In our church culture, in our American culture, lamenting is not something that's truly accepted or maybe even wanted. However, it is very biblical. Do you know we have a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations? Lamenting? Did you know that one-third of the Psalms and the Psalms were the hymn book for the Jewish people while they're in exile? One-third of them are lament psalms. Lamenting psalms. Being honest, lamenting, here's what lamenting is. It's coming, it's not just crying, it's more than that. It's not just getting everything out, saying it in the open or beating a pillow. No, it's addressing God, it's talking to God, and it's being honest about God. And it's juggling what you know to be true about God and what you've experienced in your current situation, in your hurts, in your disappointments, and it's bringing that all to Him. And it it results in trusting in God even more to his promises. But that's what lamenting is. But how much of that do we really do? Uh, In the Bible, like I said, one-third of the Psalms are those kind of Psalms. God, why have you forsaken me? That's a Psalms 22. Jeff, that's lamenting. Do you know who else said that? Do you know who quoted that Psalm? That lamenting Psalm? Our Savior did. Did you know Jesus lamented on the cross? Very honest. Uh, and we'll get more than that in just a second. But one-third of the Psalms are lamenting. 
how many, uh, how many songs in the American church are about lamenting? I know of none. Have you ever heard a sermon on lamenting or a lesson? I've heard of none. That's not to say anything about, it's just our culture. But it's something we desperately need. And Naomi is a shining example of that. She's honest. She's very honest. You see, uh, because she's honest, she's able to allow those people in Bethlehem to come alongside her and maybe let their hurts out. She's able to affect Ruth's life. And my friend, I want to I pitch to you that being stoic, acting like, you know, the way, the way, if you deal with hardships and tribulations, would just, if you just accept them cheerfully, that doesn't help anybody. Oh, if, you just, if you just act like pain doesn't hurt, that doesn't help anybody. Can I, tell you, can, can I suggest that that actually makes people um, less likely to want to uh, be drawn near to you or to your God? Why? Because we live in a broken world. And acting like you don't and that I don't, uh, it, it, it doesn't help anybody. But Naomi was not like that, was she? She didn't have bleach prayers trying to make her God look better. No, she was honest. She was honest with her daughter-in-laws. She was honest with her peers. And she was honest with God. Can I suggest that's what I need in my spiritual life and maybe what even you need in yours? Look, look at the first dialogue. As I said, it's so important. Look what she says in verse 8. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Go return each to your mother's house. Here it is, the first dialogue that's so important. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And she goes on, and look in verse 13 what she says. Would you wait for them, if, for me to have children? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And if you thought that was an accident, look at verse 21. Once again, she says, I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So no more, she's very honest, isn't she? Can we be honest this morning? Would you be honest just with yourself this morning? Would you do that for me? Let us together follow Naomi. Man, the world's hard, ain't it? The world's broken. Things are hard, even at Christmas, aren't they? Yes. Be honest. She is. And, and uh, I want you to see her honesty, but I also want you to see her theology. Uh, who does she call on? You know, this is, I, I can't tell you guys how many times. We even talked about this in Sunday school. Kind of, you got mentioned at the very end, didn't it, Jeremy? We were talking about, uh, we had a great lesson on this, and I'm sure you did too last week in Sunday school. And somebody mentioned, uh, you know, the Lord's not even mentioned in the book of Ruth. And I thought, yeah, that's right. I don't think, I think that's right. Just assume I've read it many times. We studied a couple months ago in the college ministry, and I, I read over it, and I said, yeah, the Lord's not really mentioned in there. As I was, do you know how many times God is mentioned in chapter one? Eight times. Did you notice as we read it? Go back and read it this week. God is mentioned eight times. He's mentioned a lot in this story. He is. But you know why we don't want to see it honestly? Because we, we don't want to think that is God who afflicts us. We don't want to think that it's God who ordains trials and tribulations in our life. We don't want to see that in our American culture or believe that. But it's biblical. Here's her theology. Number one, who did she blame? Who did Naomi blame for her hardships? She didn't blame herself. 
Nowhere in the text does it say that the reason this happened is because they went to Moab. You know, the author almost goes to a great extent not to say that. Nowhere does it say that. A lot of us have a theology that thinks we have hardships because of correlating sins in our life. And I just want to say this. That's not biblically true. Now, sure, the Bible's clear that we are rebels and we are sinners, and things we do do bring consequences in our life, yes, but that's not really it. That's not really the end. That's not the only uh, reason for the suffering in our life. Do you remember the story of uh, when Jesus was with his disciples and they saw a man who was blind from birth? And you remember what they said to Jesus? Who sinned, Jesus, this man or his parents? Because, right, the hardships I go through, Keith, are because of sins I've committed, right? So Jesus, who committed the sin, him or his parents? What Jesus said, neither. But for the glory of God, this has happened. You see, we live in a culture that, that, that says, oh, when hardships, and yeah, you, what you need to do is denounce that in the name of Jesus. When it's God who's ordained it to happen. I just wonder how many times we as Christians want to denounce something God is doing in our life. She blames this on God. She doesn't blame this on herself. See, if, if you think that um, hardships come on you because of your sins, um, not only is that a small net of reason, it, it, it's really a small view of God. The God of the Bible is sovereign. The God in the Bible is in control. The God of the Bible doesn't allow anything to come in our lives that he doesn't allow or ordain. Nothing is an accident. God is never surprised. And so I want you to see that here, that she blames not herself, but she doesn't say, do you see who she calls God? She calls him Lord. In your Bible, are those capitalized? L-O-R-D. That is the covenant name of God. That is the I am name that God gave Moses. Who Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And the burning bush said, tell them, Yahweh, tell them the I am sent you. That is the name here. That's the covenant name of God. The God who is, um, theologians tell us that word means that he is his aseity. A-S-I-E-T-Y. It means he is holy. He is different. He is sovereign. He is dependent upon nobody or nothing. He is in control. I, I read one commentary. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm getting too fast. I want to slow down. But she uses that name over and over again here. And then she says, look in verse 20. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty. She uses the word Almighty twice. Almighty. It means great. It means, um, it means strong, powerful, Almighty, good. It talks about that means the goodness of God. So here you have the sovereignty of God in control and the goodness of God. And she holds both of those as true. But she says, God has brought this upon me. But I know God is good. And I know he's sovereign. You see, that's what lamenting truly is. What lamenting truly is, is coming before Almighty God and saying, God, I know you're sovereign. I know what's coming in my life is something that you allowed or ordained or it wouldn't be. And I know that you're good. I know this is supposed to be for my good, Romans 8.22. I know that, but it doesn't feel like that. I don't see it. I don't understand it. God, show me. God, deliver me. God, help me. That's what's going on in the text. That's what's happening. And let me say, friend, that's a better way to deal with hardships than to put on a fake smile, than to sweep it under the rug. 
And that's what Naomi is doing here. And, and she doesn't deny God, does she? Um, how many times, uh, how many, I wonder how many atheists hold on to the fact and deny God because if Christians say there's a good God, but yet there are problems in the world and there's sufferings in the world, how can there be a good God if there are sufferings in the world? Now, I, I don't believe that logic plays out very well. Because it, it, for uh, someone to say that, to say that because there are things wrong in the world, because they're suffering, there can't be a God. Well, you truly can't have wrong if you don't have God. If you don't have a God, what is right and wrong? Well, might makes right. Whoever's the strongest, whoever has more votes is right. But truth and rightness and goodness can only be if there is a God who determines such things. What is right and what is wrong? What is good? What is bad? Because if there is no God, and what someone out here may say is right, and what I say is right, who makes them right? Who's ever stronger? So there has to be a God for there to be right and wrong. So that logic doesn't play out very well. But you and I as Christians know that there is a God who exists. And we know that He is a good Father, and we also know that He is an almighty, sovereign Father. But yet, life doesn't seem like that. The providence or the sovereignty of God dealt hardly with Naomi. That's what she said. Has God dealt hard with you? Do you feel like God's providence has been hard on you? What do you do with that? You go to God. and You, you, you do business with God. You be honest before Him. You claim who He is and you ask Him to help you. You ask Him to deliver you. You ask Him to show you. And, and not only this, but the, the third thing I want you to see here is her faithfulness. Every time we truly lament and we get honest before God, it will always truly, it, it will be this. She was faithful, wasn't she? You'll miss this if you just read over this. What's the first thing she does in verse 8? She wants the very best for her daughter-in-laws. Stay here. I, I'm not going to have any kids. I, there's no way. I, I, there's no men in that culture. They needed men to take care of them. Well, women don't need men now, do they? They really don't. They're much stronger than we are in a lot of ways. And even then they were too. But what I'm saying is in that culture to provide, they, they had to have men in that culture to provide. If not, they would starve. They would be homeless. And she didn't have any sons. And she's just telling her kids, even when we go back to Israel, I don't know if I can take care of you. And I'm not going to have sons who can take care of you and me. I'm going back hoping I can beg somebody to take care of me. I don't know how that will be for you. She says, may the Lord bless you. So she prays. She earnestly wants the best for her daughter-in-law. And she prays for them. Do you see that? The Lord deal kindly with you. She calls the covenant name, and she prays for them. She is faithful. Uh, not only she wants, she prays. But what does she do? She returns to Bethlehem, doesn't she? See, her hardness that God brought in her life, it didn't draw her away from God. And if you're careful and if you truly don't process it and lament and truly do business with God, the hardship that God's bringing in your life can make you bitter. Here's what I want to say about this. Her circumstances were bitter, but it did not make her bitter. She still thought God was good or she wouldn't have called him Yahweh. She wouldn't have called him Almighty. She still believed God had a plan or she wouldn't have went back. If she was bitter, she would have stayed in Moab. If she was mad at God, if she was, I'm done with God, well, she would have just died in Moab, wouldn't she? But she didn't. She said, I'm going back. I'm, I'm going back to God. I'm going back to God's land with God's people. 
So she allows these hardships to bring her back to God. She is faithful to her God. You know why she's faithful? Because she knows God is faithful. Don't miss that. She is faithful to God because she knows God is faithful. And get this, she didn't even have Jesus. She didn't even know the gospel story yet, did she? Uh, you could go home. What did you learn at church today? Ruth happened before the gospels. That's good. That's true. How much more should we who have the gospel message of Jesus in the cross and the resurrection and know the goodness of God cling even more? How, what does the cross help us? You know, I, I think this is a great response to those who say there can't be a good God if bad things happen in this world. Ask that question at the cross. God did not uh, allow us to go through a world of pain and sufferingness and brokenness that he himself was not willing to enter into and take the worst of it. Did you know that most temples where Buddha is, the statue of Buddha, his eyes are closed? Buddhists and Buddha, they're trying to find a way out of suffering. They're trying to find a way to live without any desires in that. And that's what Buddha college, we're taking a uh, mission trip to Nepal. Buddhist, Buddhism and Buddha started in Nepal. And most of those temples you have a Buddha with his eyes closed who doesn't know what it's like to live in this world. Can I say we don't serve that kind of God. We serve a risen Savior who went through the brokenness and trials and hardships of life worse than any of us can imagine. We have a God who can sympathize with us. Look at the cross. We have Jesus. We have a God who knows what it's like. Even more should we hang on to God. She knows God is faithful. And lastly, I want you to see the result. The result of her lament. The results of her being honest. The result of her going to God. But yet trusting God and being faithful to God. Holding her hearts and her helps. Here I am God. I'm hurting. I don't understand this. But God I know you're good. I know you're almighty. And I'm just going to be faithful. What is that result? Well Ruth. What does Ruth do? Ruth decides to be determined to follow Naomi and to follow her God. You see where Ruth grew up in Moab. The God of Moab. Chemosh was a God, uh, it was a bloodthirsty God who accepted child sacrifices. It was a God that they had to appease with blood. They had to keep appeasing him. She, she never knew. You didn't have a relationship with this kind of God. You couldn't pray to this kind of God. You, sure, you surely could not be honest with this kind of God. But all of a sudden she sees her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is going through the worst of the worst. And she's been through bad times too herself, hasn't she? But in the middle of all this, she is faithful to her God. And I believe that's what God uses to draw Ruth to himself. How is God most glorified? Is God most glorified when you're praising him when everything's going good? Or is God more glorified when you have been hurt and you've been done wrong and God's been hard on you and you're going through a hard time, but you're still faithful to God? You still believe in God's goodness. Which circumstance is God more glorified? I want to say it's the latter, that God is more glorified. And I believe that's why Ruth came to the Lord, and that's why she said, your God will be my God, and where you're buried, I will be buried. In that culture, being buried had a lot to do with the afterlife. What city you were buried with had a lot to say. That's why Joseph said, don't leave my bones in Egypt. You better take them with you, man. I'm not staying here. I want to be with my people, with God's people. And Ruth says, I want to be with God's people. Why? Because of the faithfulness. Um, you know, there's a lot of literature out there about how to reach the millennial generation, isn't there? 
there's a lot of uh, books, and I, I met with a college pastor in Atlanta a couple months ago, and he was really read up, and I'm not so much read up on this. I've read some, but how to reach the millennial generation, how to reach Generation Z, these small, these younger generations. And by the way, they are the most unreached generation America has ever seen. Did you know that? The most unreached. And here's the deal. They don't think bad about church or good about the church. They have zero experience with the church. Zero. And friend, if they come to church or if they come around Christians and they're stoic and they act like they don't live in a world of brokenness, I want to tell you, it's not going to draw them to God. What every, no matter the age, you know, we say we want the church to be a, uh, a hospital for the sick, not a museum for the saints. But is that true? Is that true in your Sunday school class? When you do prayer requests, do you just, all right, we just got to get them. And, and, or, or do you really lament? Do you really come along beside each one? I know some classes really do it. I know. I'm not saying, I, I, I'm not in all of them. I've been a part of all of them. But I know some really do it. I believe mine really does it. Do you really do that? Being real, I believe what any generation really wants is authentic Christians. Who doesn't say pain doesn't hurt. We're all good and all cheerful. No, it's not the life any of us live in, is it? We can say that, but it's not true. And it wasn't true for Naomi, and that's what affected Ruth. And I believe to reach your grandchildren, your nephews, your nieces, be real with them. Don't act like everything's okay. Don't try to wipe everything under the rug, because I can promise you that will only backfire will only backfire. Be real. Be honest. But more than being honest with others, be honest before God. And I want to say this as we come to a close. To truly lament, truly to be honest with God and honest before others and come to God knowing He's good and sovereign, but also with your hurts. To do that and to seek God and to be faithful to Him in that. To do that, you truly have to understand the gospel. You see, you truly can't come to God in prayer if you don't know that He's a Father. If you don't know that He is a good Father. The Bible says as Christians, our spirit cry out with the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father, that God is our Father. That he, I was playing on the, uh, uh, on the couch with Watson, my son. He's almost 11 months old. and I mean, he's on the couch. He's 11 months. I mean, that couch is what, this high? If he falls, he's going to bust the head. You know what I mean? Hardwood floor for crying out loud. He just jumps off of it into my arms. I'm like, oh! And last night, he jumped, in, he jumped off, and I, he did a flip to catch him. Kind of, he flipped. And I was like, oh, the kid's flipping. I'm like, he's okay. It's okay. He just jumps in abandonment. He trusts I'll catch him. You know, I heard a story of a, uh, of a, do of a doctor who um, had his dog with him, and he put his dog in his closet, but for one reason this patient was, uh, was with was going a little longer, and the dog is just going crazy. The dog is just scraping at the door, wanting out. And, and uh, the patient said, Dog, what's going on with that dog in there? He says, You know, I've been thinking about that a little bit. You know, that dog doesn't know who's in here other than me. And let that be the same in life for us as Christians. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds it. I know who's in control of it. I read one commentary that said the sovereignty and the providence of God is not comforting in hard times. What? I don't know anything more comforting than that. 
that God is going to work all things together for good, and that we serve and we pray to a God who has, is not a God who is separate from this world, but has experienced this world and created this world and is our Father. And not only that, He is a Father who answers our prayers. So I want to ask you this morning, have you truly ever been honest with God? Have you ever understood the gospel? I'm going to tell you, if you're never honest with God and honest with yourself, you'll never come to Christ. You'll, you'll never enter heaven. To be honest, you, be honest, you do live in a broken world. And that broken world is because we've sinned and, and we've been separated from God. But God is working it out for good because for, He has sent His Son to take our sins and pay that penalty so that you and I can enter in a relationship with Him. And I want to tell you this, you're never going to move forward in life you don't make the most important decision in your life the same decision that Ruth made to be honest before God and say I surrender I'm determined to follow him I want to give you an opportunity this morning if you want to be determined to follow God here in a moment I want to give you an opportunity to do that but secondly Christian is it time to quit putting on fake smiles isn't it time to quit putting things under the rug can I tell you what you're doing by doing that you're hurting those around you they're leaving you they're not drawing close to you you yourself are becoming more bitter. You may have it all together on the outside, but on the inside you're all messed up. You don't know left from right or north from south because you can't figure it all out. Can I tell you, you don't have to, but come to God. Be honest with Him. Claim who He is. Ask Him for help. Be faithful to Him. Maybe this morning you'd like to come here and lament. Maybe for the first time in a long time. Maybe you'd like to surrender to God and say, God, I'm going to start being honest with people. I want to give you an example of that. Um, there's a uh, sweet girl in our college department. She's been very honest about her struggles in life. Very open about it, very public about it. And I have seen that transform many in our college group. Also able to be honest. Also able to talk about their problems and, and, and shine light on areas of hurt. And it's done nothing but draw them closer to Christ and more people closer to, to Christ. That's what true lamenting will do. By not, you're not only hurting others, but you're also hurting yourself. And you're not letting God in. You're not able to cling to the promises of God and His answers because you're not being honest with Him. So this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Would you bow and pray with me this morning as song comes? This morning as we open up these altars, I want to ask you to take advantage of the time. Come before God and lament. Be honest with Him. You've been hiding things under the rug. You've been putting a cold smile on maybe for some time. But you come. Say, God, I, I believe you're good, but I, I just don't know it for real in my life. I'm, you know my hardships. God, here they are. God, help me. Help me be faithful to you. God, I've really got some struggles. Be honest before God this morning. Commit to being honest to others. But maybe this morning, maybe for the first time, you've understood there's a God who really cares. There's a God who really knows what it's like to go through hurts and heartache and crushed dreams. He knows. He's walked through it. And, and you will always be lonely if you truly don't have him. Maybe this morning you would want to decide to follow Jesus. You would say, I want to be determined to follow that kind of God. The real God. The God who conquered the grave. If that's you this morning, I want to lead you in a prayer. 
Listen, prayer doesn't save you. It isn't any kind of magical words. But it's you doing what Ruth did, making a decision of determination to follow Jesus. Would you do that this morning? Would you say, God, I believe Jesus is the Savior. And I know my sins have separated me from you. But I believe Jesus has bridged that gap. I'm determined to follow him. I surrender to you. Help me follow you for the rest of my days.